Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Hello, and welcome to Good People, Cool Things. I don't know what that intro was, but we've got a great episode. Today's guest is Amy Neswald, whose debut collection of linked stories just came out. It's called I Know You Love Me Too, and it's absolutely delightful. It's already been awarded the New American Fiction Prize. And Amy worked for years as a wig master on Broadway productions, most notably Jersey Boys. I'm a big Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons fan, so we're talking a little bit about them and, and kind of the best songs and performances from the show. But we're also talking about some of the worst shows that Amy has worked on, as well as her new book, What Life is Like After Living in New York City for Years and Years, Now Living in Maine, a lot more of a rural environment. But Maine is gorgeous. I haven't been there in a hot minute, but I just remember being like, man, fall in Maine just seems like one of the best places in the world. So we're chatting all about that good stuff. Amy has lots of cool stories from her career. And hey, if you're ever like, hey, it's too late to do something, we're going to dispel that myth too, unless, of course... It's to be an Olympic athlete, and you're older than, like, 27, because, eh, sorry, that's probably not, it's probably not going to happen, I'm sorry. If you like to get in touch with the show, you can reach out, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com, or Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at GPCT Podcast. You can also support the show by heading over to goodpeoplecoolthings.com slash shop, or checking out a copy of my book, Kind But Kind of Weird. Short stories on life's relationships. We've got two short stories authors on here. That means that's double the reading for you. But first, let's hop into the conversation with Amy. For people who don't know who you are, can you tell us your elevator pitch? But can you also let us know the type of elevator that we're riding on? (laughs) Um, I'm riding on a a speeding bullet. No, actually, (laughs) probably one of those really slow-moving New York City Garment District 1994 elevators that stop at every floor, like kind of in between the floors. Um, so I guess my elevator pitch for me um, is that I, I'm now a, a professor of creative writing in um, Farmington, Maine, but I spent 15 years of my professional life as a wig master for Broadway shows uh, before I had like a, a massive um, life change uh, and career change. Um, During that time, I was writing screenplays and I decided that I wanted to write fiction. So uh, I took myself to grad school, spent two years of my life um, just writing and gave that to myself and somehow talked to these people, these very nice people at University of Farmington, Maine in Farmington, um, into giving me a job. So that's so I went from New York City to really small town um usa love it love it and for your wig master one of the shows you worked on was jersey boys yes what is your favorite four season song oh um what is my favorite four season song i kind of loved um uh there was a mashup of um sherry and walk like a man that they did in the middle of the show, which maybe are not my favorite songs, but it was my favorite part of the show. So it's hard for me to um, take it apart. Or, um, And then uh, 
the um, you're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. It's my favorite part of the show too. So um, I love that song. Love it. Yeah, I remember hearing something that I I can't remember who it was, but it was some like big name radio DJ basically told Frankie Valley like, no, that song's not good. Like that's not going to be a hit. It's too like it's too slow. It's too too sappy for radio. And then that's I don't know on the charts if it's their biggest hit, but it's I would say that's probably one of, if not their most identifiable, or Frankie Valley at least, his most identifiable song, which is crazy. Yeah, and and that was actually written by Bob Crew, the producer, and it was a, a love song for his lover, his gay lover. So in the midst of somewhat um, repressed America, one of the top songs in the world, you know, was a, a gay love song, which I think is really beautiful too. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. And... I'm just curious, too, because, I mean, I, I think my uh, theater career ended in, I believe it was eighth grade when I was a, uh, a props master for our our eighth grade play. And I just the only thing I remember about this was I had to put up a like a giant um, piece of tapestry in between sets. And I had to use a little like pole with it just like hanging on the edge of a hook. And, tr- and, and it was I could not I could never get it when we were practicing. And during the show. Thankfully, the main character, like the lead character, helped me do it. Like in the dark, he like helped me finagle it, and I was forever grateful for him. But my my career kind of ended with that. So how did you how did you get interested in wigs in the first place, and then turn that into a decade and a half long career? Um, well, let's see. I I was trying to be an actor. I fell in love with acting in uh, college. And I went to New York, well, I went to California and then I went to New York to be an actor and subsequently was a, a really good bartender for most of um, my career and a cocktail waitress. Um, and one day I was on a, a road trip driving up state with my ex-husband, then my husband um, to Schenectady to visit his family. And I got my hair cut and I was speaking to the woman there. Uh, she seems just different, you know, so I asked her how she got into hair and she said that she was an artist and that this was one of the best jobs for an artist to have because you could wear what you wanted to work. You kind of made your own hours, you could make a lot of money and you didn't use your brain up. So you had a lot of uh, room for creativity and um, pursuits. So when we got back to New York, I um, applied to or signed up for, for beauty school. And that was that I threw out my headshots. I realized I really just didn't like acting. And I'd been trying for so long to convince myself that I did. And um, so while I was at hair school, I kind of fell in love with, I, I made like these crazy hairdos with my my um, mannequin heads, like beehives with flower pots inside of them and birds and um, got really interested in hair as a sculptural medium. And then obviously realized that no one would ever let me do with their hair, what I was imagining. (laughs) So um, I thought I should make wigs. And I, I bought a little book that taught me kind of how to ventilate wigs and mustaches, but it was really pretty vague. Um, One day I was leaving my building and my neighbor had a, a wig block, which is one of those canvas wig head things. And so I asked him what he did and he told me he made hats for Broadway shows so I asked him if he knew any wig makers because I thought I should probably do that instead of cut hair because who knows what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> and it turned out that 
he had a, an associate who was a wig maker who was just starting his um, business. So I started going in once a week and making wigs and teaching myself how to make wigs and waiting for the phone to ring. And then one day it rang and it was for a show um, called uh, Elephant Man with Billy Crudup and uh, Kate Burton. So we, he designed the show, I built the show. And then when we got there, uh, it was only supposed to be one wig person, but, but they needed two because of the complexity of the show and where changes were taking place. So I, I ended up never leaving and working that show and just falling in love more with um, running Broadway and working in theater than building, actually building the wigs. Um, so yeah, it, it just kind of tumbled down from there and I, I kept getting nicer jobs and I don't know, I'm a theater person <laughs> for sure. One of the questions I always like to ask anyone that's in sort any sort of kind of creative or, or live performance field is about their worst show. Because I think in the moment, those are horrific, but afterwards they make for great stories. So do you have a worst show memory? Uh, yeah, I, I have a few pretty worst shows. I worked, I, but, but the thing is like, they were really bad shows, but in the end, they're really close to my heart because there was some good stuff in them. Um, there was one show that I worked on called Good Vibrations. And um, it was so bad that for a year and a half after it closed, whenever uh, reviewers were reviewing bad Broadway shows, they compared it to Good Vibrations. Um, but and it was it was just sort of tragic. It, it was the book of Brian Wilson and um, uh, the Beach Boys, but it was this like kind of crammed in like really rough story about a girl with a really cool car who's like driving across the country with these three guys and they're gonna go surfing. Right? It was like it was pretty skinny. Um, and then all the girls had to wear like bikinis and they were running around like in the middle of winter, they had to do um, the Macy's Day Parade and like, pajamas and like, <laughs> bathing suits. It was pretty tragic. But, I, you know, if you look at those that cast, they're doing so well. You have people that are like on Dancing with the Stars and people who are on TV and people who are directing TV. So um, just a wonderful group. But it was pretty um it was a pretty tragic show. Uh, really fun though. Once we did it, we performed during a, a snowstorm and like 30 people showed up and we still had to do this show in like a 1200 seat theater. So, yeah. So that was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm kind of curious to hear some of the other ones that you alluded oh, to. <laughs> yeah, I hope I don't get sued. Um, and I also did, um, a show called um, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, which was based on the Amaldabar film. And it's since played, not with me working on it. So I think they might've worked out some of the kinks, um, but it was it was a little bit of a, uh, a beautiful disaster as well. Um, there are a lot of mechanical issues in that show that we were told wouldn't be issues. And yet, they broke down every show and it was, there was not enough cast. So when someone was sick, there was only one understudy to cover like 12 roles or something. So like, it was like this incredible dwindling cast of characters. There was a big dance number and uh, 
at one point, <laughs> there was only one dancer that was able to dance <laughs> because everyone was out sick or injured. Um, so that was quite something. I, I don't know. Like, I can't think of any other, like, things that I would classically call bad. But um, but those were two pretty, <laughs> pretty excellent <laughs> Well, it's not, it's not all bad what you've, what you've had. It's, it's, you know, a lot of, a lot of good moments in there as well. And you've channeled at least some of those into your upcoming book, which I believe just dropped, what's my math, like earlier this week, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two days ago. Oh, congratulations. That's fantastic. I know you love me too, is the title of it. What can people expect? I know you love me too, is a a story about two sisters. Um, they have a linear age gap of about eight years uh, and the same father, different mothers. Their father died when the younger one was 12 and the older one was 20. So they have really different experiences and memories with the father as well. And they have a, a tense relationship with each other. Um, the oldest, Ingrid, is an artist who's searching for her medium through through the book and she finds it a little later in life when she's 47 um she she's finds success and is very nervous about um what that means just to her because she's so used to failure right as a, a way of life and the other sister kate um on the outside seems to have like a really perfect life she's a uh, obstetrics nurse, she, you know, in the maternity ward. She has a beautiful husband. She has a son. She has a nice house in Brooklyn. Um, but she, she's she's not all not as all as it seems. She's she's really suffering too. It's just that no one sees it and no one allows her that space because they all think she's perfect. So this this book is a collection of length short stories that follow the sisters and their relationship through a number of years. Um, sometimes they're the stories they're um, in the front of the stories and sometimes they're characters um, just sort of in the background. Um, so it's really, it's about sisterhood and it's about relationships. It's about voice and finding your voice as an artist and the fear I think a lot of us have of never really living up to our true potential, what we know we can do versus how we're behaving in the world. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the skinny of it. I like it. And you, you had mentioned how you took two years uh, of just writing. Did this book kind of get started then, or was that totally, totally different? Yeah, no, it, it actually started uh, as my MFA. It was my thesis. Um, and, uh, and bit by bit, I originally just wrote one story and then I read all of Kittredge and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could write another story. And so it just kind of happened very organically that I started this collection. And then um, towards the end, when I started rewriting it, I got more and more direct as to like, what what kind of story do I, I need right now? So, yeah, but it started started in grad school for sure. Those two years. And do your students that you're currently teaching now, do they all get copies as a little takeaway? <laughs> <laughs> if they buy them <laughs> no they, they're like stories of like professors making kids buy their books to like you know for class like mm-hmm. i'm not gonna make anyone to read this <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember that i had a couple professors where they're like yeah you can buy my book is basically i think it was a way for them to not teach 
because yeah. they were just like, everything I'm going to tell you is in that book anyway. I was like, this is like $140 and I'm a broke college student. I don't want to, I don't want to get yeah. this I'll lend it right. to my students if they want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to buy it. <laughs> As you know, there's so much besides the actual writing of the book that goes into it. There's marketing, there's the book design, which having also published a book this year, there's so much that goes into it that like you don't see from the outside. So can I think the cover, especially in your book, is is super engaging, and it's a very eye-catching cover that would make someone stop in a bookstore or stop while they're scrolling through online. What what was that process like? Was that something that you knew from the beginning? You're like, I want something like this, or, or how did oh, that it's, evolve? It's amazing. Um, I The publisher hired the artist, whose name is Alban Fisher, and it, it started with the publisher, um, David Bowen, asking me to just list all the images in the book and quotes that I thought were relevant. And so I spent uh, like a couple of days just going line by line through the book and and trying to find the most um, prescient images. And I sent it off to him. And then months and months and months later, I he sent back three covers and said, which one do you like? And then I like, had to decide and showed it every, all of them to everyone I knew. And um, finally went with my gut, which was that cover that, that exists. And then I, you know, it was pretty easy. I just said, can you move this? And can you do this? And, you know, they like just really slight changes and voila, now we have this book with a beautiful cover. I mean, they did such a good job. I, I am like, I can't even believe it. Yeah, it's always an impressive as someone with no no artistic talent really at all just to see what people can do. Especially, yeah, if you like just based off some lines and imagery that you yeah. gave them to see that come to life is just so it's so cool. Yeah. A lot of authors have I you know, the 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 old saying is like the best way to market a first book is to start writing the second one. And for me, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> writing a book is hard let's enjoy this one a little bit <laughs> so, so do you do you have plans for a second one? I'm, I'm guessing based off your reaction here that you're kind of like i am gonna enjoy this first one a little bit no i actually have been working on a second one for um a really long time i you know i always think every time i start a book i think it's just i'm gonna write it in a year like i'm totally just gonna write it in a year and like three years later you're like <laughs> still like on the third draft um but i've been working on a another novel so i'm on actually am on the third draft of that oh, nice. trying to get it like to a point where i can show it to people can we get a scoop of what it's about yeah it's about uh at, at, at its center is this guy clay who is um he writes instructions and his life ambition really is to move to directions you know he's he's not terribly ambitious. Um, uh, he, I have a lot of dead fathers in my, my stuff. Um, but, but his father died when he was really young and there's a, uh, when he was eight. Um, but he gets a call kind of out of the blue, the day he gets fired from his job or let go from his father's, uh, brothers, uncles who are now in their sixties, that says that his grandmother, who he hasn't seen since his father died, is dying and asked for him. So he he goes from Seattle to New York 
to um, see his dying grandmother at the behest of these two uncles he doesn't know. And it turns out, he finds out really early on that it wasn't him she's been asking for, but his dead father. And the uncles are hoping when he steps into the room that she'll mistake him for his father. So that's sort of the premise of of the book. And it it really becomes about him. uh, Well, and, and we follow the uncles too, but it becomes about him cleaning out her apartment and, and getting to know his father through um, just sort of being in his father's shoes for, for the time that he's there. Nice. That sounds, I mean, it sounds heavy, but also, also very interesting. So we're looking, looking forward so. to it when the third draft, we're going to say within <laughs> the next year, maybe we'll be. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping. And I'm, and it's, it's a little like I'm trying to keep it a little light and funny too, right? It's because it's all about like the the grandmother. She's so mean that um, they're afraid she's not going to die. She's like in hospice <laughs> and she's been there, you know. And um, so so both both of his uncles have lived their lives, sort of taking care of her and have sacrificed their own because of it. And so they're also both looking at this precipice of freedom and have really different reactions to like what that's going to be for them. Um, so hopefully it's, it's just sort of a, feels like a cracking open and like a free freeing story of sorts. Have you had to, maybe not in the, the sense of a, a parent dying, but have you had to look through some of your old childhood things and may, make the decision of whether they get to get to remain in the house or you have to throw them out. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I do. Um, I've moved so often and I lived in New York for so long, so I don't have a lot of stuff, but um, yeah, every once in a while something comes along and you're like, why am I still holding it? Like, why do I still have this? (laughs) What's the most unusual thing that you've come across? Um, I I don't know. I, I have this toy phone that, used to be, I think it used to be my sister's, but it's plastic phone and like has like operating operator, like things and buttons on it, but it's all just like very, very low tech, like strings and um, <laughs> this little like receiver that you can pick up. So that's, that's one thing I seem to not be able to get rid of that I still have. And I find it every once in a while. Um, I don't know what else though. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's always interesting that like the things where you're like, I probably don't need this ever, but I, yeah, you can't, can't get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking now of like things in my closet. That right. My parents are coming down for Christmas, so I'm sure they will bring some more items that they want to get rid of yeah. in, the, in the house. So. Like, what do you have? What's, what's your strangest thing? Ooh, I, I should have, I should have been prepared <laughs> with this since I, <laughs> Let's do the same thing. I'll go with, um, I had a robot growing up that was called 2XL uh-huh. that you could put tapes into. And it was kind of a mix of like, some would just be, you know, here's like fun facts about a certain person or whatever, uh, or a certain topic. And then some were kind of um, choose your own adventure uh-huh. areas. And there's one, I'm going to, I'm going to spoil it for anyone that's got 2XL uh, and hasn't listened to this tape, but it was like a Tales from the Crypt type of thing. And you were a kid and you made, you essentially you made a deal with the devil, but it wasn't like, you didn't know it was the devil at the beginning. And he gives you all these wishes and 
if you make i think it was seven wishes if you make all seven then you lose because the devil now owns your soul which is like pretty deep for a kid's a kid's type of thing um but you could outsmart him if you never make the last wish so you get like several chances at the end it's like okay this is going to be my last wish or it's like no you want to hold off and then finally if you do it he's like like the kid is like i figured out who you are like i'm not making this last wish and then you get you get your life back um but 2XL I thought was very advanced as a kid because you you just push buttons to like you know advance the story and my parents brought him back down 2XL is in the house I have not used him yet since they've done that so I hope they are not listening to this I or at least skip over this part so that they don't know that he's not been used but he's he's sitting there waiting for use and have got a lot of the tapes I think I have the tales of the crypt one um, but I clearly know the winning, <laughs> the winning route through that. But sometimes it's nice to make the kid, you know, have eternal damnation. Sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> that could be so traumatic, right? You're like, I know. I was playing my, with a toy, and now I'm like going to hell. I know. <laughs> All because I told my sister to do play in traffic or something. That's another thing of that. I was just like, there's a lot of, a lot of questionable things in there, but still a good time. <laughs> Now, another question I always like to ask is a question that you wish you were asked more frequently. Mm-hmm. And yours was, what are the benefits of being a late bloomer? I'll say it in a story fashion. But when I went to grad school, I was middle-aged. And there were so many people who were like fresh out of college or just, you know, a couple of years out of college. And I was so, I felt at the beginning, like I had wasted all this time. Like, what had I done? So I made myself write a list of what I would have missed in my life if I had um, had gone five years earlier. And so I did that. And then I made a list of what if I had gone 10 years earlier and I went down the line and I, I realized I would have missed so, so much. I've had such a full life and a really like beautiful, weird existence that, um, that, that I had gone at the right exact time. And um, so, so one of the biggest lessons I've learned as a a late bloomer is like, it sounds pat to say it's never too late um, because sometimes it is too late. Like I'm never going to be president and I'm definitely not going to be an Olympiad, but. um, (laughs) What would your, what would your competition be if you were? If I was. (laughs) Yeah. Probably swimming, though I have fantasies about gym, gymnastics, but I'm afraid to go upside down. So probably. <laughs> yeah, that would not end yeah. well for me. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, but there's always like, there, there's always an opportunity to begin something new and, and see where it goes and see how fascinating it can be. And, and um, you know, I guess I'm, as, as one gets older, like you realize that no one really cares like what you do so long as you don't you know kill kittens or hurt people <laughs> right so so being always uh, willing to begin um is one of the things i i learned as a late bloomer as opposed to you know before i went to grad school i would still like try new things but i was very um insecure about starting right because i was older and like i just it felt like silly and it wasn't, I, I changed my life midstream because of it. Um, so those are some of the benefits of, of allowing yourself to be a late bloomer and just, just 
take a chance. You know, I have a friend, my friend, Rick Corrado. Um, he told me once, I think when I was thinking about going to grad school, he said, um, jump. And then he said, don't jump in front of a train, but jump, <laughs> right? Like you watch a little bit where you jump, but, um, you know, and I, I believe like people have the capacity to do this. Like we, we always think that we have, um, all these obstacles and we do, you know, kids or you're really tied into where you live or, you know, you're, you're consumed by your job, but that doesn't mean that you can't start something new. It just means you need to know what, what, what the limitations, how much you can commit yourself at the beginning to it, you, you know? Cool. All right. Well, Amy, you're almost off the hook, <laughs> but we always like to wrap up with a top three mm-hmm. and for you, this is also something I like to source so you can be the expert on it, but your top three things that working in theater has taught you about telling stories. Yeah. So um, number one, the most fascinating people in the building at a theater, um, especially back in the day when I first started, were the stage doormen because they saw everything. They saw who came in, who came out. They'd seen all the machinations of all the shows that had ever been in that theater. And not only that, they were really fascinating people who had had long careers and usually in theater prior to being stage doorman. And they were so quiet and grumpy and scary. And, and you know, it, and you, you just not wanna, you know, bother them at first. And then as they slowly warmed up to you, they would just tell you these incredible, incredible stories about the theater, the theater history. So, so I guess one of my things that I learned from working in theater is that stillness is not dull, right? Stillness means that there is this rich story beneath it and that in storytelling, we can have both and imply this, this depth um, while we, we tell very simple stories. So that's one, one lesson. Um, another thing I learned working in theater, it was how to tell a story really quickly when you needed to, because sometimes we had 30 second quick changes and you just, for whatever reason, because you were like telling stories to people or because, you know, something came up or, or you had a thought, you know, from an earlier conversation, you need to learn how to tell a story in 30 seconds or less. And um, so, so I really credit working in theater and having to, to really get the story out um, backstage helped me a lot. Um, and then the last thing that comes to mind, I, I didn't actually do when I wrote that question, I was like, I had those two in mind and then I'm, now I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> I forgot the last, but um, we sometimes, during the holidays would have like these long slogs of weeks where you had two shows back to back to back um, just because there are eight shows in a week and days off and stuff like that. Um, and I remember that being backstage, like the actor, everyone would get tired, but the actors are the ones that are like on stage, like dancing their hearts out. And now like, you know, for these extended periods of time. Um, and so I started doing weird things. Like I'd wear my hair in pigtails. I do all these quick changes for them, like really silly quick changes to, 
to get them laughing right as they like came back and um i think i learned too that even like in the kind of the hardest most intense moments people want to laugh right um people tell jokes at funerals and it's not because they're insensitive it's it's to break the tension so our characters do that too and and so that's that's what i also realized about storytelling from working on broadway go for the laughs always even in a tragedy look for the look for the light fantastic and i i wholeheartedly agree i think that's one of the best ways to get through uh, any kind of tragic situation well amy thank you so much for taking the time to hop on the podcast you said it was your first podcast but no one would have known flawless <laughs> flawless work if people want to learn more about you where can they find you um, I have a website, amyneswald.com. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find. And I have an IMDb page, IMDb page too, if you want to see any of my little films or anything. Is it accurate? I've heard uh, IMDb occasionally. It's not, it's not as bad as Wikipedia sometimes, but I occasionally have some missteps. <laughs> um, yeah, there's some missteps. Uh, and they, they're not listing a film <laughs> that they have. Like, I haven't, like, put it in correctly. So, so it's not, like, completely accurate. But check it out. Still better than my page, which I don't believe exists. Although, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. You might. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Well, Amy, thank you again for, for taking the time to chat. This was great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Absolutely. We got to end up with a corny joke, as we always do. I even made it themed for this episode. Did you hear about the big Broadway show about puns? <laughs> Turns out it's a play on words. Get after it today, people. <laughs> nice work. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you're a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.